Welcome to another episode of Reverse Ambition, a podcast that features those who take a leap of faith to follow their dreams and passion. My name is Kelsey Cooper, also known as a social broker, and I'm very excited to speak with today's guests who have an extraordinary entrepreneurial journey. After nine years in investment banking and 4.5 years in forensic accounting, she decided to leave the corporate world to become an entrepreneur. Her entrepreneurial journey started in March 2015 after giving birth to her son when she decided to create a youth financial literacy initiative called Kizu Bank. This inspiration came while searching for books for her son. She found that there were limited offerings of financial literacy books for children. In Kizu Bank, she strives to inspire children to continue following their dreams. She is passionate about combining her business expertise with her desire to give all children a fair chance to succeed to succeed in life. Since taking that leap of faith into the entrepreneurial world, she has become the 2019 New York State Mother of the Year, an awards-winning author, as well as a successful investor. She also has created a financial curriculum which has gone into 217 schools nationwide and an annual Kipreneur Awards Gala honoring enterprising youth and the adults who support them. Please welcome Jitali Bellington. What up, girl? Cheers, Kelsey. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on here and uh, connected with your, your listeners. Yeah, I'm sorry. I hope I didn't jack up your bio. I was trying to get all the dope stuff that you know, <laughs> you know, that you've done in there. You know, so I, I you know, thank you. I know you. It's I mean, worth... I appreciate you trying. So it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I try to condense it. You know, I try. I'm just trying to whet people's appetite in terms of why I'm talking to you right now. Um. So I know you're limited for time. Um, so my first question is usually walk me through your journey starting from where you're from, where you went to school, what you majored in, and what you did after college and so forth, and then how you got to where you are now. Does that works? Yeah, that definitely works. Um, I mean, technically, if we go way back, I'll start a little bit further than college and uni days. Um, I was raised in Manchester, England. And um, in that time frame as well, my dad was with an American woman who ended up, well, she was West Indian, but when they broke up, she was my stepmother. When they broke up, she moved to Brooklyn, New York. And then that kind of created my relationship with New York City. Mm-hmm. So I then had the pleasure of getting to kind of experience, I guess you would say, two ends of the spectrum of, let's say, being in an underserved community. Um, and then being in a community where everything was flourishing and it was just like no struggling, no issues. Mm-hmm. And that really framed my relationship with money, with financial literacy, my need for it, my understanding of it, my uh, desire to go back to my dad and say, Daddy, can you teach me everything you know about money? And, you know, my stepmother, my mother figure, as I call her, I don't really like the word stepmother, but my mother figure was a woman who she literally lived borrow to borrow. So one minute she lived in a very posh neighborhood in like, let's say Park Slope, Brooklyn. And then she would like live in East New York or Brownsville. And then she would live in like a really dope area in Bedsty, or, you know, you name it, Sheepshed Bay or Manhattan Beach area. And it's like, before you knew it, she would be like in the basement of somebody's house again. Why? In Flatbush. Why was that? And um, because she, so she was really bad at money. She had spending habits. Her nails were always beautiful. Her hair was always lit. Her shoes were always great. 
she always looked so well and put together, but financially she didn't prioritize bills and savings and certain things. Mm. So my dad and her broke up because of her spending habits. And while I had the luck of staying with my dad, thankfully, I thank God I had my father. Um, you know, what ended up happening was I wanted, of course, as a girl to have a mother figure. So I would spend a lot of time with her and every holiday or time that he would send me down to like New York to visit her as a child, it was like she would borrow the money my dad sent me down with, the list continues. So as a kid, it kind of like traumatizes you mm. to just see somebody that you care about go through that up and down of never knowing where they're going to live and being so horrible with money. So mm. for me, I took that as an opportunity to go back to my dad and say like, Daddy, can you teach me everything? And that would start my journey. And make, you know, by the age of 16, when most kids were in high school, just worrying about like graduating whatever, or, you know, getting to like becoming a junior or something. I was graduating from high school early and I had my first paid internship, um, you know, at a at Credit Suisse First Boston, which is a very major investment banking company and would end up becoming a company that I would stay with for a long time. And, you know, I would go to school in like suits and shoes and stuff Wow! and leave school because I have my credits and I would leave school early and like go to my internship. Mm -hmm. And I was so serious about this. Like I just, you know, I was always locked in on just like, I want to make that money. I don't want to be that person who has to live borrow to borrow. Right. And so that was kind of how my journey started. Um, ironically, I always loved children. So uh, I went and my, I wanted to be actually a child psychologist. So I honestly thought I was going to leave the finance world to be a child psychologist. And I was at Bristol University in the UK. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I love the school. But when I did my first paid, in, like my first internship with a psychiatrist, and I really realized that um, with a psychologist and a psychiatrist, I did two different types of child um, therapists. And I realized that I didn't feel like they could do enough to save and protect children and it actually kind of drained me and was so depressing to me. Mm. And so my major became po uh, poli-sci and my minor became child psychology. Mm -hmm. And then I just stayed in finance for so many years. I never really left finance. Right. And the only time I left finance was, which most people don't know, so you can, you're probably getting something that most people don't really know about me. So I left Credit Suisse. And when I left, um, for like almost a year, for like maybe eight months, I was a secretary at an office just because I had never been like, since I was 13 years old, I'd never had like a secretarial position and I just didn't know what I wanted to do next. And I was just like, I just need something that I felt like was more relaxing than looking at people's portfolios, worrying about making people millions of dollars and what happens if I don't do a good job and I don't give them a big enough return. So did you get and, burned um, out at Credit Suisse? That's why you left? Um, so no, it was, honestly, you don't get a personal life. So although the money was amazing, um, two things happened to me. There was this moment where I took a client's portfolio. They gave us basically $10 million to invest. And I took the $10 million and through the startups and portfolios I told them to invest in, we turned that portfolio to $104 million wow. in a year and a half. Wow. And so when I was able to do that in a year and a half, you know, my team, you know, they were like, oh, my God, you're amazing. But my bonus check was 50000 mm -hmm. And that was it. And something about that didn't settle well with me because I just kept thinking, I made you from $10 million to $104 million 
And my check was not even like 500000 It was a $50,000 check. Yeah, that's like pennies and, compared to what? Yeah, and somebody else would be like, oh my God, that's great, you know. But for me, it was really like an eye-opener because it occurred to me that no matter how hard I worked for these people, there was always a ceiling above my head. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I didn't have a personal life of my own. Like, I, it's hard to date and be in a relationship, a serious relationship and grow a family when like your company can decide we need you to go to Germany for three months. Mm. We need you to go to Russia for three months. We need you to come back to the UK for three months. We need you to go to, to America for three months. Wow. And so I was, that was the life I was living, which was great because, you know, there were so many benefits to it. But then the downside was, I, how was I going to make my own first million if I was too busy making it for others? And I couldn't even invest in those accounts because what people don't realize is because you're making this money. So even though I'm using, I'm using company resources, so then the companies, especially in investment banking will then tell you any real estate you want to purchase, any stock you want to purchase, you have to clear it through the company first. Mm, right. And they want to make sure that they don't, they want to make sure that it's not like insider information and you're not utilizing company resources to make yourself millions. Right. So, just things like that. And I was like, so here I have this knowledge and this no wherewithal, but I can't even do it for myself because I'm too busy doing it for other people mm-hmm. and being put in a position that I can't. So fast forward, <laughs> you know, not to get fixated on that. That was part of what made me leave mm-hmm. uh, corporate uh, the first time. And, you know, so I left and I just needed a break. I just needed to be able to like be stationary and have like a life. Mm-hmm. And actually go out and chill with my friends without a limit of I'm only here for one week. Right. And, right. Um, you know, so I left. And then when I left, while I was doing the secretarial position, a friend of mine reached out and she's like, hey, you know, numbers better than I know anybody can. Do you know anything about accounting or your CPA? And I was like, no. And she was like, hey, you know, this company I work for, there's a major issue happening where uh, Dolce & Gabbana, a few companies were uh, taxed highly. Um, where basically the government came and did the audit and they owed a lot of money. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies were like, wait, let's make sure our books are in order. And she was like, we'll teach you what you need to do, but EDI mappings and forensic accounting come. Like, do you want to come do it? And the next thing you know, that was my next path. Mm. And before I knew it, I became the head of that the office that I was working wow. for. And, and then before I knew it, like we had clients like Mark Jacobs, Oscar De La Renta, the list continues, Gucci, um, and we were just, you know, doing forensic accounting, looking over their books. If somebody was stealing from the company, we would find them and then look at how much they took from the company and decide what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, which, unfortunately, is crazy. I noticed that people who made $30,000 a year were afraid to take a state plot. And people who made three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 a year were people who were spending, you know, on their personal materials on the company card mm. and just really reckless. Yeah. So, you know, it's a lot of lessons on the journey. Right. Um, which is, you know, to me, that's what would end up leading me to my purpose because I realized that I had this intimate amount of love and patience for children that I just don't really have or I didn't have for adults before. <laughs> so right. when I would think about what do you love the most? Because, you know, it's like when you sit there and you're like, what do I love to do? I'm like, I love children and I love finance. Like I love being in the finance world. I love numbers. I love it just makes me happy to help someone's portfolio grow. And so fast forward, you know, next thing I knew that was me. Like, you know, I was becoming a mom. And once again, I was in a position where my job paid well and had a lot of nice pets. 
Was this in the UK or was it, it in was, the US? So that was in the US. So the forensic accounting was here in the States. Okay. Um, and, you know, so although I got to visit home often, um, it still was a lot of hours of working. Mm-hmm. And we had clients back home in the UK. I had clients in California. So what I would end up finding myself is waking up at 6 a.m. to have an 11 a.m. meeting with a client in the UK. Mm-hmm. And then going to sleep at midnight because I had a nine uh, around midnight because I had an 8 p.m. with a client in Cali. Okay. So, right. so then once again, I find myself in a rat race of like overworking. Were you still and when single? when you become a mother, that doesn't end. Were you still single? No, at that, at that point I was in a relationship, but it was okay because he's a workhorse too. So okay. he overworked himself and he worked, you know, crazy hours and double, triple shifts. And it didn't bother me because we both were banking up and working hard. Right. And, you know, so it didn't, it wasn't an effect until you have a child. Mm-hmm. And when I, I tell you having a baby is, it's really that moment where you really decide, like, what are you made of? Yeah. Because there's so many things as a parent that you want your child to be able to look up at you and be like, I respect my mom or my mom is dope. Or you want to make sure you can leave lessons that you've learned to your child in case, God forbid, anything happens to you. How do you make sure that your legacy and what you've learned gets passed on to that child? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when I started thinking that way, I was like, uh, it's time for me to be corporate once again and the second thought i had was i want to write a book financial literacy book because i want to be able to leave that legacy for my child Mm. and if i die at least he had this book and learned at least one thing from me right rather it was about depreciation and understanding that everything has a value right or you know just one versus needs just being able to provide that for my son um and so that's how it started for me, honestly. So basically having a child basically just changed your whole perspective in terms of you know, oh, yeah. career. And that's what, you know, that's what made you transition from the corporate world to write this book. And that's where this is when your entrepreneurial journey started. Oh, yeah. And it happened so quickly. It was like overnight. One minute I was writing a book. And then a few people read the, the transcript, the manuscript of the book and said, this should be a curriculum taught in a school. Wow. And next thing I know, I was learning, um, I was learning how to create a finance a curriculum for a school. And I was on everything from Udemy to YouTube to all kinds of online tutorials to learn, like, how do you create the modules? Um, how do you make it um, compliant in the school systems? How do I submit my program to the school system? Mm-hmm. Um, and literally before I knew it, in our first year as a curriculum, we were able to um, go into a total of 97 schools nationwide wow. in the U.S. Wow. So wait a second, back um, up a little bit. How was it mm-hmm. writing a book, transition from forensic accountant to be an author? How was that experience? Was it hard? Uh, you know, it was funny. I like writing all these little notes. And I had a million notes everywhere. If you open up any of my books, that I was doing work, I would have a finance tip and note that I used to put to the side because I would teach my nieces and nephews with those tips. Mm-hmm. And so the base of the book was in my notes the whole time. And it was hard, I'm not going to lie, because I just never knew I had that in me. Mm-hmm. But I also had the passion even more of what I wanted to accomplish with that book. Right. And, you know, and there's nothing more than passion to me. There's nothing that could fuel you more than passion. Right. And so... For me, that was it. I mean, the hardest part of writing a book was deciding if I want to self-publish or publish with an uh, author, um, with a publishing company. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I ended up deciding to self-publish because 
a few of the very major publishing companies that I reached out to, their responses, especially one in particular, told me I should make the title character Jewish mm. or a sidekick to a Jewish character because Jewish kids know about money, supposedly. What? Which I'm not saying that they don't, but they basically told me um, it's not believable that a child of color would be teaching um, a bunch of other kids and other demographics about money. It's more believable if that kid is like a sidekick. Wow. Um, another feedback I got from another major publishing house was girls are in right now. So it's cute that you have a boy as a title character, but you need to make him the backup character and make a girl the title character. Wow. And for me, especially with this being my main, my first book, I was like, well, I have a son and I want a book that emulates my son, makes me think of my son. Yeah. And, um, you know, so these little feedbacks I would get back um, made me decide to self-publish. And that was probably the hardest part of my journey when it comes to writing the book, honestly, was um, the order and then deciding if I'm going to publish with someone or not. Mm. And then learning the process of what happens when you self-publish. Because when you self-publish, you then have to put all this energy into your own book and your own product. Mm -hmm. So I was vending at events, mm -hmm. right? Like literally my first vending event, um, most people don't even know the story, but my first vending event was at the um, State of the Black World Union, which happens every time a president, there's a new president in New Jersey, in Newark, New Jersey. There's a, there's a, I guess you would say a unification of minds and scholars and people from black the community from around the U.S. and world come out to Newark, New Jersey and hold council. Mm -hmm. And they talk about so many different things. And that was my first time ever vending. I released my book November 1st, 2017. And then two weeks later, I was at the State of This Black World Union mm -hmm. doing my first ever vending event. And because of the fact that it was during the week, um, you know, at that point, I couldn't expect my son's father, my husband to take days off from work. Mm -hmm. um, so he still had to go to work. And I was vending for the first time with my son on my hip. Wow. So it's like feeding him, trying to sell a book baby on your hip, trying to keep him entertained, trying to tell someone what my book was about. And it was such an interesting experience. But How many books really did you lit. move? So my first four-day weekend, I sold 500 books. What? Yes. And when I tell you that was the motivation that I needed to know I was on the right path, it was what I needed. Wow. And part of that motivation was um, I had a moment where – I had a woman challenge the value and the worth of the book that I wrote. I took so much time, almost two years writing this book, put so much energy and love writing that book. And there was this woman, she was a judge. She was an older judge. Um, she was a black woman who was in mm. her 70s, I think. And she came and she told me my book was overpriced. And I was selling my book for $15. Wow. And I wanted to do this thing called Kidpreneur Awards. So um, I was like, oh, you know, we're trying to do a... a a kidpreneur award so if you do five dollars extra i'll sign your book for you so it's twenty dollars or 15 unsigned and she said you should sell your book for ten dollars if you're lucky 15 what? i mean <laughs> and she was like i'm a black judge i could teach my grandchildren just myself if i really wanted to and i remembered it took me a second because in my head, I'm like, what if this is a consensus, right? At that point, I had only sold maybe 15 books. Mm -hmm. And I said, what if I'm wrong? Maybe I'm overpricing my book. And I had to catch myself and say, you know what? This is the price that you did your research. You came out and this is the price that you wanted to do. This is the price you're going to do. That's it. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her and I said, well, thank you for your opinion. But this is the price of the book. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, feel free to teach your children that book, you know, that information. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, so long I guess she didn't buy it, right? <laughs> after we had that exchange. So wait, the story gets better. Leonard Jeffries, who's a very prolific thinker in the black community, uh, African-American community in the U.S. especially, Leonard Jeffries was nearby and he saw the interaction. And Leonard Jeffries walked up to me and looked at the back of my book and thumbed through my book. And then he was like, sis, this kind of knowledge, they have to pay for it. Mm. And he was like, I'm happy that you didn't settle the price of your book. Mm -hmm. And then he pulled out $20 because I was about to gift him my book. Mm -hmm. And he pulled out $20 and he said, did you not hear me? You need to make them pay for this kind of knowledge. Mm. And he bought the book. Mm. Wow. Here is this man who has gifted so much knowledge to our, to our lifetime. And he bought the book. Wow. And, you know, it was so, I, it was so, um, it impacted me on so many levels because it reminded me of value and self-worth. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, later after that transaction, many people bought the book and the lady came back to me and she said, oh, you know, I think I'll buy your book at 20, at 15. Wow. Uh, then she said, I'll give you the 20 to sign it. And I said, what changed? And she said, well, I see all my friends and everybody seems to have the book. Wow. And she's like, and, you know, I feel away if I left and I didn't get one for my, for my grandchildren. Mm, I mean, I want to, you know, I want to dig into that a little bit in terms of, like you said, know your self-worth and know, you know, know your value. Do you think people of color devalue themselves um, oh, and, yeah. and I'm going to ask you that time. question because you're from, you know, you're from London, England. So, you know, I just want to Manchester. Manchester and I want to see your perspective from that perspective because you wasn't raised here. You weren't, you know, you didn't go to school here. I've lived here long enough. I've, I've lived here. I mean, I did go to high school actually in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, I did two years of high school at Andrew Jackson High School, which okay. most, that's another thing most people don't really know about me. Um, but for two years, I lived during high school time and I, I went to Andrew Jackson High School. And then I did one year of junior high school in the United States. Okay. And so I've had that experience. And then I've also had the experience of now as an adult working for pe with people of color, working at these corporations and just seeing people time and time again, afraid to ask for a raise. Meanwhile, mm. they're busting their butts, they're doing everything they're supposed to do. But even on the corporate sector, not even able to look at their boss in the eye Wow! and being afraid to even say, Hey, you know what? They could work for overtime and be like, you know what? He, he missed a couple of hours and I've met people who were afraid to even ask for the hours that was owed to them. Mm. Wow. Right? right. And so I don't know how we break that, but it's definitely an issue in our community. It's definitely an issue. Um, in, you know, I don't know where it comes from. I do see it a little bit more here in the United States versus the UK. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I feel like sometimes they say the the Afro-European in the UK, we don't know that we're, we're, we're black. I remember one uh, one Irish guy told me that before. He's like, you know, you, you Afro-Brits, you don't know that you're black. So you don't know that there's an injustice against you. He's like, I love the confidence. And then he said it in a, in a way to give a compliment. Mm. But I remember thinking that it is true, though, right? Yeah. There are a lot of people being... Um, you know, and then for me, I also had the for being a subdued and uh, being put, you know, held underneath a knife at all times. Right. Mm -hmm. Where you just feel afraid to talk. You need your job. And there's this um, fear of losing and going without. So it, it can be overwhelming for lots of people. For me personally, the fear of rejection has never been a problem for mm -hmm. me. I would rather I'm more afraid of what happens if I don't fulfill my desires and my my mm -hmm. future my purpose mm -hmm. because i don't want to be that person i am more scared of being that person 
who is in their 60s looking back at, I wasted my life and right, thinking things right. like, I wasted my life, I shoulda, coulda, woulda. I, I am more afraid of that than I am of someone telling me no right. or telling me they're not interested in my program or someone telling me I don't want to sell my house to you. Like, right. And um, and it's something people be like, how did you get your... So to rewind, in 2019, my finance curriculum, we went into 200... Yeah, I was going to get curriculum. that. I was going to get to that. Um, and I wanted to, you know, before yeah. that, I was like, but clearly you always ask for what you want. And that's what made you somewhat successful. Um, so you sold 500 books your first weekend. Um, and basically how much did you eventually sell total to this point? Roughly, you don't have to give me an exact number. About 15,000. Wow. Just, just by yourself, you know, and ways you did that by you know, vending, what other ways did you sell your book? Vending, um, schools, my major contracts are school books, um, selling it to the schools, doing author day visits. Um, how did you get a relationship with the schools? I how, did tell you, you. how did you get a relationship with the school? So that was actually kind of hard. Um, so that was not fear and rejection. So mm -hmm. I literally created a list of a thousand schools. Because um, one thing people don't really remember about the DOE is that every school every year is given a budget. If they don't spend that full budget, what ends up happening is that the school system will basically, after one to two years of them doing it, sometimes two years, sometimes if they're lucky, three years of them not using a full budget, they mm -hmm. actually lower the budget for that school. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, well, you're not using your whole budget, so whatever. And once they lower your budget, it is harder for a school to get their budget increased. Right. So when I first I was getting rejection because people were saying, oh, it's cute that you worked in finance, but we don't know you. What celebrities backing you? What wow. bank is backing you? Mm -hmm. What awards have you won? And at that time, when I first saw it, I had no awards, no celebrity backing me. Mm -hmm. um, I technically still have no celebrity backing me, backing me. But So you were you know, cold so calling these, they, these schools, you know? I was cold calling schools. I was reaching out to schools that my friend's kids went to, and they were like, we don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. We don't want to get your book. And then I started to try to think outside of the box. Like, what would I do if I was if this was a finance investment banking issue? And then I was like, well, where do the budgets go? And then I learned that the budgets get deducted the way that they do. So I created a list of a thousand schools that basically um, let me know all the schools that had their budgets not spent for two years, at least years back to back. Mm -hmm. Some of them were the schools that were for three years, they you know kept returning budget. And then I call those schools and I and my my. How do you get that information? Became, it's on the fiscal budgets for all schools are on the DOE website. It's legally, it's public information. Each school's website wow. um, will also mention their fiscal budget. Right. So I created districts. I went to those districts that I was interested in. Um, I started out with local districts here in New York City and New Jersey and uh, Westchester and Yonkers, and then um, I created this list. And the schools that I noticed rejected their budgets, returned budgets three times, and were fear. And then the ones who did it for two times, who were at that cusp, I then called those schools and said, "I've noticed that you've returned your budget twice this year for the last two wow. years, and I know that if you do it a that third was bold. time, that you'll." <laughs> so that was it. And honestly, so out of a thousand schools that was called, I hired a girl for ten dollars an hour, a college student, and we just stayed on the phone. She took. 400 i took 600 and i might have gotten rejected 700 times she got rejected a few times i got rejected a few times 
And out of 700 no's, there were still 300 yeses or 200 wow. something yeses. Amazing. And so, yeah. And it's like people be like, so it's like it wasn't about, I could have gone. There was a day that I got like 50 no's straight. Mm. Each person I called was like, send an email. Then I'm like, I call, I sent you an email before. And they're like, we're not interested. Then if we don't reply to your email, we're not interested. Like I was getting responses like that. And I was like, okay. And I would just hang up and call the next school. Wow. And have the same positive energy. And then I would get a yes. Mm. So like after 50 no's, I would get like one yes. Mm-hmm. Then like another 30 no's and then like another yes. Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, with my son on my hip, I was going to schools in the snow, in the rain to meet with principals. That was another thing. So like after 300 yeses, you had to meet with principals before you started to teach your children. Mm-hmm. And so I became a DOE vendor and I was doing all these things. And then sometimes I would have to let the principal know, hey, I'm going to come with my son on my hip. Wow. Is it okay for me to have my son at this meeting? Wow. And some principals would be like blatantly, no, I don't think it's professional. And in which case I would then have to say, okay, well, maybe next year I can do your school. But thank you for th- saying yes at first. Mm-hmm. And that was another sacrifice because you have to always prioritize things in life. Mm-hmm. And my priority, number one, was being a mom and making sure that I wasn't, I didn't have a mother or dad I could give my son to. Mm-hmm. I was his mom, right? Mm-hmm. And his dad is a workaholic and he has to work to bring home the real money while I'm trying to decide to be an entrepreneur and mm-hmm. be a stay-at-home mom at that moment. Mm-hmm. So it was a compromise. And that compromise was then understanding that wow. I can't go see a school where I don't have anyone to be my son with. Wow. Everyone I know in my cycles is at work. Right. And, you know, school school times are during the time people are at work. Right. So, um, you know, it was a lot. But realistically, I would do it all over again. And... I now look back, I've won so many awards. I've received state proclamations. I've received awards. I've, you know, I've gotten all these grants. Um, We had 217 schools completed from California to Miami to New York City, Um, Yonkers, you name it, the the list is continuing. And the best part is not only was I able to do that, but I was able to also go to underserved communities and do my program for free. Wow. So out of 217 schools, we did did 44 of them for free. Mm. Wow. So, so when did you now let's get back to when did you transition your book into a curriculum and what inspired that transition? Uh, it was literally within the first month. I released the book November 1st, 2017. My dad was a Scorpio 1111. So I wanted to release it around the time of his birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, so shout out to Scorpios. I'm not one, but I got so much love for you guys. This is fine. Um, and then I'm a Pisces. Okay. I like Pisces. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. So, um, cool. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take it. Um, so um, I released the book November 1st, 2017. Two, three weeks later, um, after releasing the book, I received someone telling me that I should make it into a curriculum and it would go really far as a curriculum. Mm. And then by January, January 2018 to the June school year, which was about five months, basically, I test piloted my curriculum in about five schools. Wow. And you didn't, how, and you, and you learned how to make schools, it into a curriculum. Technically it was 11 schools, but yeah. And you learned how to put it into curriculum Online, by, by YouTube. YouTube. Wow. And at the same YouTube, time, you were online, at the same time, teachers that I knew. Right. At the same time, you were still selling your books. You were like doing multiple things at the same time and take yeah. care of your son so, and being, um, and being, uh, you know, uh, a, 
a part a good partner you know and trying to make money from home so in a sense like making money from home in a sense that i'm like i was doing um quickbooks integrations from people from home so if you had a quickbooks account if you had all these paper documents and you wanted to do create your first quickbooks account i was setting it up for people from home i would do that one o'clock in the morning while my son was sleeping so i could make some extra money in the house because literally one of the things that i think 99 percent of people don't know who unless you're my family and friends was that i didn't I did it without asking my husband at the time any money for any money at that mm. time. So I didn't ask my husband for any money. And most people were like, oh, she had a husband. She was good. Mm-hmm. She had someone to feed it. And I was like, no, he's paying the bills. He's paying the mortgage and, right. and the, the, the gas and electric and everything. And I was like, this is my crazy idea. I'm not asking him for not even $50 mm. for anything. And if I did take $50 from him, I gave it back to him. And he'd be like, no, no, no. And I'm like, no, take it, please. Wow. And it wasn't about pride, but it was really because I felt like he already was doing enough to sacrifice for the family Mm -hmm. because it was definitely a sacrifice. And I didn't want to have to dip into savings. And then next thing you know, I had no cushion in case, God forbid, anything happens. And I also had this mind frame of just believing, like, you never know what's going to happen. Right. What if tomorrow he dies mm. or we get a divorce? People have babies and get divorces within a week or two mm-hmm. all the time. And I just had this mentality that I was like, I need to be able to be self-sufficient and not abuse of the situation. Because even abusing of the situation can lead to a divorce. Yeah. Right? When you're like, oh, I'm chasing my dreams. You go work hard and I'm going to spend all the money yeah. chasing my dreams. Yeah. That can be disrespectful to a person. Yeah. So... You know, so people, so it wasn't like I was there and I just, you know, dipping into my savings and or I was just literally just expecting someone to pay my whole way. Every vending event I did, everything I did, I would take that money and I had to learn how to budget it properly. Mm-hmm. Where would I put the money into marketing? The list continues to make mm-hmm. it go as far as possible. Wow. So, I mean, no regrets about self-publishing at all, clearly. Um, No, but I will say this. Now I'm, I'm about to release another book. And for that book, I'm actually looking for a publisher. Uh-huh. And now that I have a certain base of relationships with schools and I have like this little tribe of, on social media that's growing, like we're at 17,000 um, and growing almost at 18,000. The list continues. Now that certain things are happening, because I released my first book the way I wanted to, mm-hmm. I am more receptive to like wanting to become like a New York Times bestseller and knock, knock off like certain goals Mm -hmm. and i know that one of the easiest and best ways to become one of those is to have a publisher you know helping you holding your hand and having a person and you know a person to pitch your book um and all these things so yeah so now i grow as i grow you want to grow you want to learn what's the next step that's my next step yeah when it comes to the book world okay i mean this is this is an amazing story. I mean, I'm getting so many lessons, you know, being that even though you had a husband, you didn't rely on him as, you know, for your entrepreneurial endeavors. You basically managed that yourself. So that's a little, like, amazing because a lot of people get comfortable. Like, oh, he's paying the bills, you know. Oh, I'm asking for a little bit of money here to kind of help me do this. But you didn't do that. You figured out how to kind of, um, you know, be an entrepreneur <laughs> um, and a mother <laughs> and a, and a wife. Um, did it- yeah, it, it wasn't easy, but you know, honestly, and I don't know if women who do ask because you know, some people say, well, you know, there should be a budget. Some people believe he should be giving you two, $300 extra mm-hmm. towards whatever. And that's fine. And that is a story for certain people. But for me, the way I was just raised and the way my brain thinks and the way I feel, I just knew I was taking a gamble. Mm. And it was also at a point where I had, 
had a lot of people telling me that the idea of having a finance curriculum wasn't a good one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were a lot of people who were also like people who I truly respected, who were amazing professionals, who were multimillionaire billionaires, who basically told me that they didn't think it was a good idea. Wow. So when I started to branch off into that, and then when that became successful, and I started looking and investing in real estate more aggressively and doing certain things, like if it was up to certain people, I never would have branched out. I never would have invested. Mm-hmm. I never would have done 75% of what I did. And I also had to make sure that I could do it on my own if I had to. Mm. Because what good is a person saying they're a millionaire if they don't know how to make the million? Mm-hmm. So that's basically your goal, to mil- to becoming a millionaire. You know what I mean? If you just give them... Well, I already did that, actually. So thankfully, I've accomplished that mission. Oh, you are um, a millionaire. Awesome. And as of 20... Yes. Nice. Thankfully, I'm excited. And real estate, honestly, was the way that, that got me over the hump. Uh-huh. Um, and that was probably the best conduit, um, wholesaling, flipping, becoming a landlord, learning about not having a tenant, not being in tenant-friendly states and learning how to invest in landlord-friendly states, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with a tenant in New York City who didn't pay for like a year and almost a year and a half. Wow. And being like, nope, not doing that again, ever again. You know, so you know, in between all this, you also got into real estate between you know yeah and yeah you gotta have you have to diversify a portfolio and you know it's crazy it sounds crazy hearing how many things that i was doing but people don't realize when you go to work for someone oftentimes you bring the work home mm-hmm. and you end up spending 16 hours at least on another person's corporation making them rich mm-hmm. so by the time i became an entrepreneur I already had had days where I worked 20 hours and only slept for three, four hours. Mm. So now as a mom and as an entrepreneur and juggling all these things, it was like, for me, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to have a few more sleepless nights, but it's going to be worth it. Yeah. Because I saw what my work ethic was able to do for someone else mm. with their corporation. Because you drop dropping so knowledge, girl. my work ethic do for myself? Right. It is. It's, it is what it is. And so for me, that's what that's what it came down to. It boiled right. down to me realizing that I have to take that same work ethic and pour it into myself now. Mm. I mean, this is so poignant, um, especially now that, you know, a lot of people is getting laid off and they're trying to figure out, do I, you know, look for a job like 22 other million, 22 million other people or do I want to go and pursue my passion? So this conversation right now, I feel like it's so um, important and I think it's so inspirational so what's what next for you now that you are a millionaire you're, you're a successful um, author <laughs> publisher um, successful mother and an amazing um, husband I mean excuse me amazing wife what's what now what's next also an investor um, I think next <laughs> yeah so uh, for next for me is um, you know still um, I've so since the whole coronavirus quarantine situation has started, I've actually helped uh, 321 moms, 321, 321 mothers and fathers um, create their first investment accounts, rather mm-hmm. with REIT, dividend stocks, teaching them what dividend stocks were and t- teaching them about the market. So what's next for me, honestly, is getting that number to 500 people that I've helped to invest in the stock market or not just stocks, but real estate or just invest, period, physical commodities whatever mm-hmm. um are just understanding the world a little bit better so that they're not just caught off guard um so that's one of the goals second goal is eventually to become a new york times bestseller so i will be curving my goal towards that 
Um, What's your and, book going to be about? Um, I really, the one that's really, your, you know, that you're going to release next. So we have two. Um, I'm trying to figure out. I have a team, and we're trying to figure out which one we want to pitch next. Okay. But there is an adult financial literacy book, um, and then there's a, a picture financial literacy book for kids. So there's the picture book. All the designs are done. But because we have branched into doing so many universities, actually, we were supposed to be going to Howard to do a financial literacy class with a sophomore and freshman class with some freshman and sophomore classes. Um, And like we had a few other colleges like Xavier College in New Orleans. So we were going to be doing some things with universities. So because of that, I feel like it's even more important for me to maybe push the adult book, financial literacy book up Mm -hmm. forward. Because, you know, unlike most financial literacy books, I have a way of giving the simplicity of what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess those, and then, oh, the last thing I want to do that's a really major goal for me is I would love to find a way. So if someone's listening and they know how to do this, please feel free to reach out. But one of my major goals is I noticed that when you get a credit card company, people don't understand APRs and all these things, and then they just legally allow it to open up a card. Mm. So I would like to find a way, rather it's me or someone who wants to team up with me, um, I would love to find a way where it is becomes legally, a, you have to take a test and pass a basic comprehension test mm-hmm. on what it, what it means to have a credit card and your payments and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. The same way if someone goes for a bankruptcy, they make them take a little Q&A test and they teach them something and you have to pass that test. Mm-hmm. I just want people to at least have that. Mm. I feel like it's wrong in our communities when you give a kid a $5,000 card for 24% APR and they're making minimum payments thinking that they're doing something. Mm. Meanwhile, if you borrowed 5,000 at 24% APR, by the time you're done making minimum payments, as if you borrowed $9,500. Wow. And so why should a kid who don't understand that concept even get a credit card? Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like if there's a way that we can change that or there's a way for us to make sure nationwide around the world, around the U.S., financial literacy is more of a component. That is something that I'm very passionate about. Mm. And um, the third thing is I'm building a youth art museum in Ghana, which is really exciting for me. Awesome. Um, and that's my last thing, I guess. Wow. So projects I'm working on right now is that as well. You're building a youth art museum in Ghana where we'll wow. teach e-commerce and financial literacy and how to make art using oil or paint, um, canvas, base, bases, and the list continues. And you would, not, you would not be doing all these things if you did not take a leap of faith and leave your well-paid, <laughs> well-paid job to start from the bottom as an entrepreneur. So um, last 100%. question, is, I know you got to go. So any advice that you would give anyone who's looking to, you know, dive into entrepreneurship, who may be, you know, married, who may have kids and so forth, um, who may not know the worth all in terms of what they want to do. So um, the first advice I would give is do not fear rejection. Literally, you know, fear of rejection, the word no, do not get rid of that fear because trust me when I tell you, you don't want to be on the other side of that fear of of failure because you never even tried. Mm. And um, just also know that you might have to do it 20, 50 times before you perfect your recipe and that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. There's no race 
to your success. Mm. Um, you know, so don't compare yourself to someone else who did it. So as far as you know, five times and got it, or the person who could jump on a bicycle and know how to pedal it and, and be on two wheels in, in like literally five minutes, don't be, don't compare yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, because that person might do that in five minutes, but then you might be the next BMX bicycle rider and you don't even know it. Yeah. So, right. um, I say that. And then I also say like, you know, this is a perfect time to invest, you know, don't take this time to invest in yourself mm-hmm. or financially invest in the market or whatever, but this is an investing time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, when they hear invest, they only think about the markets and real estate and whatever, but invest in yourself, mm. find out who you are. Do you have a deeper purpose? Do you have a patent that you wanted to create and you have an invention that is sitting there that you could just take to the market, put into the market and, you know, make a million billion dollars sitting there. Mm-hmm. Just remember that we are all one idea away from being a millionaire. Mm. So what is your one idea? Yeah. So I think that's what I would kind of leave everybody at. Yeah. Well, listen, I know you got to go, but this conversation has been amazing. I would love to talk to you more, especially about that Ghana uh, gallery you're talking about, but I know you got to go. Thank you. But I think you dropped so many, you know, just by sharing your journey, and, you know, by hearing your story, I think so many people could, you know, people will get so much um, nuggets, um, just not not only just become an entrepreneur, but in life. And so thank you so much. And I look forward to see you doing amazing things that, and become that New York Times bestseller. I know I know, know you will. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's only a matter of time. I'm getting like an NAACP image award. I'm getting all of that. I'm coming for it. <laughs> right, Put it out there, girl. Put it out there. Put it out there. I'm affirming it. I'm affirming it. That's 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 the first thing you need to do when you go after something. Affirm that it will happen and believe it will happen. All right, I'm let you go. Thank you so much. And I, thank you so much. I'm sorry we had to rush off, but you know it's always a pleasure. We have to catch up after this. Let's schedule a call because you know I'm gonna have to harass you and make sure you have. A custodial account. Oh yeah, set up for your door. I mean, listen. While listening to you, I was thinking and, about you know how much I was lacking in terms of all the things I need to be in terms of you know being a responsible adult and being a responsible entrepreneur. So I was definitely taking notes well, for that's myself. Why you have friends like me. Exactly. Oh, I'm gonna lean on you, girl. I'm a call. Well, come on. You should. Let's make that. You could be part of my 500 goal. So let's go. All right. You're a dad. You're a father. Let's make it happen. Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> all right, girl. All right, big hugs. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Thank you all for tuning into Reverse Ambition Podcast. It is really a pleasure sharing these amazing journeys with you. It may take some time for you to find your purpose and realize your dreams or for your purpose and dreams to find you. When it happens, don't be afraid to pursue them. Be more afraid if you don't. Trust God, trust your journey, and most important, trust yourself and it will all work out. Until next time, I am Kelsa Cooper, the social broker. Thanks again for listening.